Shush! That's far too noisy. Shush, 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 shush. My name is Glenda Reed, crack librarian. All of my information is classified, and I shush to kill. So, if anybody makes too much noise during the acts this evening, you will be answerable to me and the date stamp of death. So prepare to be duly decimated. And also, this also applies to any of our lovely readers this evening who might go over their allotted time. You have been warned. So thank you for coming to Book Jam on this lovely bank holiday Monday evening. Extra points for coming out on a Monday. Now, as you know, I'm a librarian. <coughs> Three cheers for librarians. And um, as a librarian, of course, I read rather a lot. I do like to read. And recently, I was reading a magazine. And at the back of this magazine was this section called Classified Ads. Have you seen these classified ads, people? Have you? You're obviously all lying. <coughs> and uh, well, all I can say is that they're not very well classified. I mean, there was a... Uh, an advert for a, a, a six-foot TV with a large knob that was listed in the personal section, which should clearly have been, been in the electrical goods section. And um, I thought, well, this is, this is terrible. What a terrible state of affairs. So I wrote my own classified ad. <clears throat> Would you like to hear it? Yeah. Jolly good. <clears throat> Glenda Reed's classified ad. Here we are. <clears throat> Dewy-eyed librarian. Sagittarian, vegetarian, libertarian. Long overdue for a fine romance, so shelve your fears and take a chance. You can read me like a book, so come and take a closer look. Look me up, look me down, cover to cover. Take me out on the town, book lover. File me under loose leaf, but don't leave me undefiled. You're bound to enjoy yourself, so don't leave me on the shelf. Like Onan the librarian, I have issues about being alone. And I wish you would page me for a date. Don't label me, don't be late, and we'll be fine. I'll take off your jacket. I'll run my index finger down your spine. Ooh, hard back. You'll take off my reading glasses, and as you caress my tresses, I'll give you headings from the Library of our Congress. Shh. <coughs> and, uh, oh, there we are. Goodness me. Too many pairs of glasses. So, yes, um, there we are. And I did, I did have one, one response to my uh, classified ad. Uh, and I was very excited because he said he was a... He said he was a cardiologist, and obviously at my time of life, it's very important to be around people who know a lot about, about cardigans, which are obviously very important to us as librarians. And uh, also, he said he had, a, he had a large print Moby Dick, so as you can imagine, I couldn't wait to get my hands on that. So uh, you can imagine my disappointment when it turned out all he had was a little Kindle. <coughs> I mean, you know, really. You can't, you can't sniff a Kindle, can you, really? <laughs> I mean, oh, well, I can see that you've tried, young man, but, you know, there are limits. <coughs> anyway, so that was, that, was, that was a terrible disappointment, but there we are. At least I still have my books and my cats and my jam, and here we are at Book Jam. Isn't that marvellous? So 
without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first reader of the evening. Now, we're very privileged, privileged to have a young man who's come all the way from Liverpool this evening. His name is Joshua, Joshua Iden, which I've probably pronounced wrong, who is a mercurial poet. He's a spoken word genius, leader of the Frofunk band Benin City, and founded renowned mu poetry music magazine, Poejazzi. As a poet, he's performed at most major festivals and he has been anthologies alongside our local boy, Linton Crazy Johnson. And he's taught at the wonderful Roehampton University, which is a marvelous institution just down the road in Southwest London, and um, was poet in residence of Wimbledon Festival and the Free Word Center. So without further ado, please welcome Joshua Iden. <laughs> Hi, how y'all doing? Oh wow, thank you, because uh, for a moment I thought you were all dead. Um, yeah, it's, um, uh, I live in London, but I, I was on a little, um, a bunch of shows in Liverpool and uh, had to take the train from Liverpool to Leeds to London. Basically, I'm tired. So um, if anything goes wrong in the performance, that's what I'm going to blame. Um, I have five minutes, and uh, it, none of it is from a book. It's literally going to be uh, a poem. I call it a poem. It's actually a collection of tweets. Does anyone here have Twitter? Everyone in front. <laughs> the people in the back who were invited are like, what is that? <laughs> I've only gotten used to Facebook. Anyway. Um, in 2014, there was a thing called Gamergate. Gamergate is uh, part of the reason why you all know who the out, uh, what the alt-right is. It, that was your first breeding ground. It was basically a bunch of Nazis trying to stop women and uh, people of color from getting into video games. Um, I and a bunch of um, other people would spend ages arguing with them on Twitter. And at the time, Twitter was 128 characters. Yes, those of you in the front, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, just 128, you know, you could barely say anything. You'd be like, I, w um, that's it. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a terrible time. Wit, wit was everywhere. Um, and it meant that you had to use a lot of abbreviations and terminologies to get a point across. So you'd say stuff like, you know, IMF or SJW or anti-SJW. And uh, if you were someone who didn't live on Twitter like I did, you wouldn't know what the fuck was going on. Uh, so I decided to write a set of tweets that basically explained um, what we were saying to any newcomers. And um, I like to use analogies. Um, it's, it's how I understand the world. So with these particular tweets, I use the analogy, your mom does the washing. Uh, this will all make sense as I go on. Okay. The world according to your mom does the washing. Capitalism. Your mom does the washing. You pay her a dollar. You get her to do your mate's washing. Your mate pays you $50. Communism. Your mom does the washing. You do the washing. Every night you salute a picture of your dad. Socialism. Your mom does the washing. You do the cooking. Everyone is theoretically happy. Fascism, your mom does the washing under the threat of violence. Feudalism, your mom does the washing and pays you tax. Liberalism, you watch your mom do the washing and you feel really, really bad. 
Something must be done, you say. Something may or may not get done. Libertarianism. Your mom does the washing. You believe you did the washing. Religion. Your mom does the washing. You thank God. Atheism. Your mom does the washing. You make a YouTube video demanding peer-reviewed evidence she did, in fact, do the washing. Misogyny. You hate your mom whether or not she does the washing. Patriarchy. Your mom doesn't exist. The washing is mysteriously done. Feminism. Your mom insists you grow up and you do your own washing. White feminism. Your mom hired a woman of color to do the washing. Male feminism. That one time you did the washing, you tell everyone you did the washing. You blog about it, you brag about it, you take a selfie, you do an Insta story, you go on opera, you win an Oscar, you go on Fortnite, you made a dance. You're not a woman, you're an Ali. Hashtag me too. <laughs> Cultural appropriationism. While your mom does the washing, you steal her dirty clothes and mimic her in public. The public gives you money. Colonialism. You barge into your mom's room, claim you discovered your mom's room, dump your dirty clothes on the floor. Americanism. Your, your mom does the washing, it's in this constitution, end of discussion. Mansplaining. <laughs> your mom does the washing. You tell her how best to do the washing. You have never done the washing. <laughs> Sexism. Of course your mom does the washing. Duh. <laughs> Misandry. That one time your mom refused to do the washing is proof she hates you. Egalitarianism. That one time you do the washing is proof everything is equal and no one needs feminism anymore. Hip-hop. Every day I'm hustling, every day I'm hustling. When I bring the basket, mama puts the washing in. Narcissism. You look good in the clothes you washed, your mom washed. And finally, surrealism. The washing does your mom. Thank you very much. You guys have been awesome. Have a good, great evening. Marvellous, thank you so much. And within five minutes, excellent, jolly, jolly good. Now, I believe we have Mark Wosher left, is that right? Mark Wosher next. Mark Wosher? Calling Mark, excellent, excellent. Now, Mark Wosher apparently was born in Gravesend Hospital and just missed being the first baby born in 1984. And uh, he's moved to London, makes films, won Best Short Awards at festivals in the UK and uh, praised from the Huffington Post. And I read that as the B FBI, praised from the FBI. Apparently it's the BFI, that's just as well. And uh, he's written for Den of Geek, Cult TV Times, Lionsgate, Bright Club. And he's got his first novel out, The Bo Boy Who Stole Time. He says he's not married, does not live in Surrey, but did once climb a mountain dressed as Peter Pan, which reminds me of the time that Christopher Biggins came to my library. And he said to me, Glenda, he said, where are the books on pantomime? And I said, they're behind you. And of course he said, oh no, they're not, and we, we were there for two weeks. Anyway, without further ado, please welcome Mark Bosher. Hello, uh, so I'm Mark, thank you. Um, I'm Mark Bauscher, and I'm just gonna read a little bit from The Boy Who Stole Time, which is, it's a fantasy adventure all about a young boy who has gone searching for the essence of time itself to save his mum's life, and he's 
gone to this magical land called Alea and he's set three impossible challenges by a king. And at the point we enter the story today, um, he's looking for a still flaming feather from a firehawk, but he's just been captured by this group uh, called the Gummarlins. So this is just when Krish has been captured uh, by the Gummarlins. And I'm going to read a little bit from uh, this chapter, The Firestorm. A twang. Air rushed past Krish. The heat of a flame. A speck of fire sped through the air just to his left. Moments later, one pinprick of flame hit another. Then the sky was ablaze. A wave of flame shot out in every direction from where the beast had, had soared a split second before. A rippling carpet of flame spreading across the firmament, the light fantastical and the heat terrible, bearing down on the mountains and the valley below. There around Krish and his captors felt as though it was smouldering any longer in this wretched heat and they would surely suffocate. Yah! A cry from the Gummarlins. The reins whipped against the horses' coats and they rushed in the opposite direction to the flames. The speed they were moving in now was incredible. Hooves beat the rock below them so fast it felt as though the rough ground were as smooth as ice. Air rushed past Krish and the sacking flew off. The relief to be in the air was instant. In fact, his face was covered in sweat and he began to feel cold. He looked back at the unbelievable sight in the sky behind him. The bird was gone. In its place, a billowing ball of flame lighting the night, filling the landscape with flickering shadows cast by the barbed towers of the gigantic rock formations towering over them. They sped down into the valley until the Gummarlins found what they were looking for, yelps of approval. Krish was lifted off the back of the horse and dragged to a crooked, petrified grey-white tree. The ball of flame above them had billowed into a cloud. The cloud split into five or six pieces and spread across the sky overhead. The chill of the night melted away. You never seen no Gummarlin catch a firehawk before, Boona said as she bound Krish to the tree. Chris shook his head, hoping somehow that acknowledging her might make her reconsider. You don't catch no firehawk, not fully grown. Too strong, but you can kill one. Only way to start a firestorm. Firestorm where the young come from. This day secret. When firehawk grow old, one day they climb high in the sky and explode. Both male and female carry eggs, and when they explode, the eggs in their body come to life in the firestorm. You see soon their eggs of flame. They born small but fully formed and ready to hunt. And when they young want, and what they young want before anything else? Breakfast! She tightened the last bond and began to walk away. But they young full of energy, unpredictable, want to burn the place up a bit. You want to live? You stay still. We save you. No worries! Krish was not filled with hope. The instant Boona was back in the saddle, the Gummarlins rode halfway up the mountain and observed Krish from on high. Krish waited for sheer panic to take over him. It took a few seconds to, be comp to comprehend exactly how dire his situation was. The air was thick with heat. It was becoming too hot to breathe and harder, and the harder it became, the more his lungs gasped for air. A burst of heat 
burned his skin. He must be on fire, but there were no flames. He turned, the furnace-like air stinging his eyes, just in time to see what had caused a momentary rise in heat. One cloud of pure white flame was now a perfect globe. He looked closely and saw that the globe had cracked. What Abuna said, eggs of flame. And in moments, a young firehawk would be born, hungry for its very first meal. Another burst of suffocating heat, blinding white light engulfing the world. The light faded. His eyes were filled with purple spots with their yellow tails. Then another burst and another and another. The egg was covered in cracks. The egg pulsed through the sky, the air, everything for miles around must be able to feel the hotness of the cracking egg high above. One last burst and something shot past him. Fragments of white hot shell landed on the ground and he looked up at the glowing shape in the sky. Wings of white tinged with gold cupped around the magnificent form that hung in the air above him. Then, in one single fluid motion, the wings unfolded, and the gold-white firehawk, sleek and fierce and beautiful, swooped down towards Krish, its eyes bright, unblinking, and hungry for the first meal of its life. Thank you very much. I am also flogging coffees on the stall at the back and happy to sign any. So, yeah, please do pop along and grab a coffee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark. Marvellous. And as Mark says, there is a bookshop at the back here. Much as we love libraries, this is not a library. If you want to take any books home tonight, you will have to buy them and make sure that our wonderful authors make a living. So there is a bookshop at the back. Please feel free to uh, purchase any of the books that you hear this evening. I believe there might be some special discounts. Okay, so for our next reader, our next reader is Maximilian Hawker, who works in Children's Social Care in Croydon. Big cheer for social workers, please. And uh, yes. <coughs> And uh, he also works in partnership with a charity, OCD Action. He's been a sufferer of, of, of obsessive compulsive disorder himself since he was a child. And this reminds me of um, one of the heroes, the great heroes of librarianship, um, to whom we owe so much. Has anybody heard of Melville Dewey? Melville Dewey, anybody? Yes, somebody knows our great hero, Melville Dewey, a man who was not diagnosed with OCD in his lifetime because I don't believe it had been um, um, identified, but a man who was so obsessed with efficiency and, um, um, and, and, and making sure everything was in the right order, efficiency and order, that he even cut off two of the letters of his own name, Melville, the last L and E, because they were inefficient. And he, of course, gave us the Dewey Decimal Classification System, of which we are also very, very proud. Anyway, um, without further ado, let's hear from Maximilian, who is going to read to us from his latest novel, which is for children, Rory Hobble and the Voyage to Haligogen, which I've probably pronounced wrong. Maximilian Hawker. Good evening, Brixton. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, just a little bit of a background. Um, I'm not here to take your children. I know I work in social care, so I don't want you to worry about that, all right? Um, because I have OCD, my book is absolutely perfect. It's just spot on, just so. So 
be rest assured of that. I'm currently crowdfunding it on Unbound. Um, so if you do like what you hear, then try supporting me and um, help get it on the shelves. Um, so just loosely, the book is about a boy aged 11 who suffers with OCD and he travels into space with his social worker to rescue his abducted mother. So not your run-of-the-mill story, really. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from the second chapter. Um, and just for context, some mysterious lights have appeared in the sky. Um, Rory has discovered um, a small alien whale, um, which he's called Gary, and he has it in his rucksack. He's just coming home from school. Um, he's going home uh, late to, um, to meet his new social worker with his mother. So I'll read a little bit from that. Rory opens the door. Mum looks distinctly unimpressed, arms folded across her dressing gown, out of which she does not look to have changed all day. Just where have you been, she spits, before grabbing him roughly by the arm and dragging him inside. Look at the state of you. I'm sorry, Mum. I got sidetracked. Is she here? Of course she's here. More of an oddball than the last. God only knows what she thought I'd done with you. What will she say when she sees you? The oddball would say that Rory could do with a towel and some hot chocolate. Rory shakes some of the wet from his sleeves and turns in the direction of the voice. His mouth drops open. The woman he finds standing in the flat is young, perhaps in her early 20s, and quite unlike anyone he's ever seen before. She has smooth, dark skin with bronze hair fizzing off her head in every direction like a series of firecracker explosions. Her eyes are almonds, honeyed with the glint of a private joke, and her green lipstick gives her an amphibious quality. Her waistcoat is a peculiar patchwork of rusty leather and tartan suede, and she sports a velvety cravat resplendent with stars and comets that half conceals a lanyard with her local authority ID badge. A leather skirt cuts off at her knees, giving way to purple and black hoop tights that end in big buckled boots. She holds out a hand, a smile lifting her lime lips. My name is Limmy, and I'm startled that it is customary for you to swim home from school. Her accent is unusual. There's a slight hint of French as well as something else. Rory snaps out of his trance and extends one dripping hand. Oh, oh no, I, I didn't swim. It's raining, you see, so I, I got wet. Coolly done, you absolute muppet, he scolds himself. Mum grabs Rory by the shoulders and frog marches him towards the bedroom. Thank you for the clarification, Rory. Now let me and her continue our chat. Actually, Limmy speaks up, I should very much like to speak to Rory a little. Miss Hobble, perhaps a towel and... You must be hungry, Rory. Rory's belly grumbles. Oh, oh no, I, I'm, I'm good. He knows where the freezer is if he wants anything, Mum pipes up, her mouth twisted in apparent irritation. Is that so? Limmy replies, one wild eyebrow lifting. Do you prepare meals in batch and freeze them down for him then? Nah. Mum's voice shoots from the bathroom. It sounds as though she must be fumbling through the airing cupboard for a towel. Who's got time for that? We got chicken nuggets from the local, fish fingers, waffles. A balanced diet then, Limmy calls through to her. Mum plods out, holding a towel, slippers scuffing the linoleum. Well, we got baked beans too, if that's what you mean. She turns to Rory, chucks the towel at his head. Don't make a mess. Thank you. Mum? 
Marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Thank you so much. Now, for our last speaker of the first set is Emma Gray. Now, Emma Gray is a writer and journalist from Glasgow. She has an MPhil in creative writing from Trinity College Dublin and works as a journalist and editor at London-based media house Jungle Creations. Now, her first novel is called Be Good to Your Mammy, which reminds me of the time the late, great Matt McGinn walked into my library. Anybody remember Matt McGinn? Were we all too young, probably? And, of course, what did he say to me? He said, you know, Glenda, he said, ye canny shove your ganny up a bus. Ye canny shove your ganny up a bus. Ye canny shove your granny up a bus. Ye canny shove your granny, for she's your mammy's mammy. Ye canny shove your granny up a bus. There we are. Yes, you are. We're very inclusive here in the library. So, without further ado, please welcome Emma Gray. Um, I'm sure most of you have found yourself in the position at some point in your lives where you've met someone and everyone said, someone's going to write a book about you one day. Well, everyone said that about my gran and here we are. This is a book I wrote about her. She was a doolally bastard, as we say back in Glasgow. God bless her soul. She died while I was writing the book and it kind of helped finish the book. And um, basically, like Max, I'm crowdfunding it with Unbound. So if you like what you see, if you pre-order a copy, that would massively help me out. And um, my gran was basically, her great legacy in life was that she gave birth to six kids. But in my book, she wanted more than that. And in reality, she wanted more than that. And that's basically what I'm trying to get at. So here's a scene, basically, from my book. The audition for this showgirl and the sailor was being held somewhere near Central Station. That day, I paid more attention than I'd ever done to his green and gold sign as me and Lizzie stepped underneath it. A man in a pawn shop windy was eyeing up my jacket. I breathed in deeply the, small in the smell of smalt and vinegar as we passed the chippy. There were no lassies as fancy as us around, and it made me wonder if we were even going to the right place. Yes, I'm reading this in broad Scots. Well, this is it, I said as we stopped outside a decrepit store on Jamaica Street. B-b-beautiful, slurred a man. We looked down and made eye contact with a junkie. He had a broom paper bag in one hand and a shoe that looked like it had been half eaten by a dog in the other. He smiled what would have been a toothy grin, but he'd only one cackle between his gums. Are you sure this is it? Lizzie asked, voice lowered. I pulled the smudged dad out of my pocket and handed it to her. Here goes now, I said, pushing the door open. We were greeted by a long grey and met grey and metal staircase. For a moment I wanted to kick off my kitten heels but I didn't want to get holes in my tights either. By the time we reached the top, I was so worried that I'd sweated my makeup off, I didn't notice how many other lassies were there at first. There must have been at least a hunter, maybe mare, and the room was dead silent when me and Lizzie stepped in. I knew it was because we were the best dressed lassies there. They were trying to burn my coat off with their dagger eyes. Suddenly, a wee woman with straw-like blonde hair tapped on my shoulder. There was no way she was here for the audition. Can I ask you a few questions, she asked. It's for the Glasgow Herald. Me and Lizzie looked at each other and smiled. I could have sworn I heard a lassie hiss. Fire away, I said, beaming. Is acting something you've always wanted today? I just love the pictures, Lizzie said. And I've got a bit of a photographic memory. Well, I think so. So the acting's in my blood, head, I interrupted. The I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I practiced in front of a mirror. 
The other lassies at school didn't get a look in, no offence, Lizzie, when the teachers were casting the Virgin Mary in the nativity play. Are either of you dancers? Aye, we said unanimously. She smiled. Thanks for your time. Good luck, she said and walked off. We had to wait a good two or three hours before we were called into the audition. There was three parts to it, forties dancing and acting. I was in front of Lizzie in the queue, so I went first. The photographer didn't have to tell me what to do in front of the white screen. I was dressed like a star and I knew how to act like one and all. Beautiful, he said, just like a professional. He gestured for me to move on to the next part of the audition. I cast Lizzie a reassuring glance, but she was retreating into herself the moment I got in front of the camera, nervously picking her nails. I felt bad angered. She was my biggest competition. A young man with a trim beard and a slick back black hair walked up to me. If he hadn't been on the short side, he'd have been the most handsome man I'd ever seen. He extended his hand and I shook it. My palm was sweating like a junkie in an off-license. Lovely to meet you, he said in an, in an American accent. My name's Gordon, Gordon O'Leary. I'll be playing Johnny, the sailor. My knees just about collapsed from underneath me. All right. To get an idea of how well you can dance, we're going to do a few simple steps, he said, before quickly moving his feet on the ground. I repeated the steps he'd shown me perfectly. His eyes widened. Then I noticed two men watching us. One of them smiled at me, and I smiled back. I wasn't going to be another Thistlegate lassie who amounted to nout. We're going to speed things up now, he said, doing two steps for me to copy. Before I knew what was happening, we were dancing around the room like we were in the picture itself. I felt like all my prayers had been answered. All right, that's enough, one of them said. Well done. Once again, I looked back at Lizzie. As much as I didn't want to admit it, her and Gordon looked like a better couple than me and him. There was another fellow in the next room. He told me he was Gordon's understudy. I could see why. He had a monster hairy mole on his chin. Three, two, one, action, said the director, snapping a clapperboard. It's never going to work between you two, he said, pulling a convincing facial expression. I opened my mouth to speak, but no words came out. Cut, said the director. Miss, you need to be on time. Have another go. I nodded. Sorry, it's awfully hot in here. Jeannie, you fucking muppet. What the fuck did you say that for, I thought. The picture's getting made in bloody Los Angeles. I took a deep breath in and fumbled through the scene. I tell Lizzie what happened on the tram, tram home. She said she got through her, first her lines first time, but that she'd almost decked it while dancing. We were even then. I just hoped that looking and dancing the part was enough. If there was any justice in the world, I'd be the showgirl and Lizzie would be the understudy with a monster hairy mole in her chin. Lizzie got a letter inviting her to Los Angeles a month later. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you, Emma dear. Now it's time for a break, so please, everybody, buy drinks, buy books. Don't forget to buy a book over there at the bookshop and enjoy yourselves, and we'll see you back in 10 minutes. Thank you. Take it away, Andrew. Shush, 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 everyone, shush. We're ready for the second half. I was going to say second third, jolly good. I have to say, though, wasn't it marvellous to see the Tories getting such a drubbing in the local elections lately, wasn't it? Yes, thank you very much. I have to say, I, uh, 
It put me in mind of when that, uh, that rather unpleasant David Cameron came into my library last year sometime, and he said to me, um, Glenda, he said, Where can, have you got that new book that's just come in on how to have sex with piglets? I said, that's disgusting, I'm appalled. I said, how can you stoop so low? And he said, that's the one, have you got it? Has it come in yet? I said, oh, disgusting, absolutely disgusting. And then um, his, his friend, that, that rather nasty little man, Nigel Farage, came in shortly after that, and he said to me, have you got that new book that's just come out? Uh, it's a self-help book for men with um, men with large, rather small uh, manifestos, shall we say? And uh, I said, well, I don't think it's in yet. He said, yes, that's the one. Have you got it? <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. Anyway, that's enough about them. <coughs> Here we are. That welcome to the second part of the evening. And our first writer is the wonderful Naomi Foyle who is an award-winning poet, science fiction novelist, verse dramatist, and essayist. She has many collections of poetry out and um, all sorts of, of eco-science fantasy things. And I just, well, without further ado, I think we should let her on. She was actually born in Islington the night that Jimi Hendrix played the Roundhouse. So I know, I mean, if that's not significant, what is? And uh, she grew up in Canada, lives in Brighton, and is here to speak to you this evening. Please welcome Naomi Foyle. Hey, Brixton. Yeah, I am sentimental about London um, with that pedigree. Uh, I live in the satellite love now. I live in Brighton, but London is my mothership. I was here for a week on the Extinction Rebellion protests, and I, yeah, and I, yeah, that was uplifting. Yeah, we can do it. You know, I finally feel hope that we can, people power can turn this around. Um, we can, we can save ourselves from climate catastrophe, and we can build a better world in the process. The only way we can do that is if we all are involved. Uh, I was there at many, all the sites, and I know that there are people of color involved in key positions in Extinction Rebellion, and I know that they have an international solidarity ethos. They're not getting that message across properly, and it's, it's not coming through in their demands. Uh, Red Pepper this, this week published an excellent letter from the Wretched of the Earth and grassroots collectives calling on Extinction Rebellion to work with them to really create a plan. Um, so I'm just hoping that XR will listen, and I believe that they will, because I believe that, that, that you know, we have the momentum now, um, and, they, and, and they, have, they do have the vision. So these conflicts, you know, politics is conflict, isn't it? And, and working things through and learning to communicate. Um, these are things I've explored in the Gaia Chronicles, which is set in a post-fossil fuel Mesopotamia. The protagonist, Astra, is a young girl uh, growing up in an apparent eco-idyll. It's a small, nudist, vegan nation called Island, where people live, work, and co-parent communally. This paradise comes at a heavy cost, though. The Gaians, as the Islanders call themselves, live inside a wall in a perpetual state of armed defense against the refugees on their borders, the so-called non-landers who previously inhabited the land. Astra, growing up, firmly believes the non-landers are terrorists, but that view is about to be challenged by two people, her shelter mother, Hokma, and Lil, 
a wild child who's been living in the woods with her father and since his death has thrown herself on Hokma's mercy. She hadn't wanted to become friends with Lil. She had hated Lil. But the girl swooped into her life and plucked out her resistance like a vulture disemboweling a lamb. First, she was so unutterably grief-stricken, no one could hate someone so sad. Once she'd started crying, she couldn't stop. For a week, Hockmer gave Lil bowls of stew and mugs of warm oat milk and let her lie on the sofa for hours wrapped in a sheet. Astra came to Wise House after school, bringing wildflower bouquets from the path, and tried to entice Lil outdoors to the aviary to help with silver and helium. Lil trailed behind her to the field and watched the birds fly through swollen eyes. When at last she climbed up onto the roof with Astra, she just sat there, hunched over, plucking at stems of grass. Astra searched for crickets and carried one over on her wrist to show Lil its bright green legs and twitching antennae. Lil looked at it dully. You have to cook it first, she said. Astra whipped her wrist away and released the cricket back into the meadow. It's not to eat. We don't kill Gaia's creatures here. Lil shrugged, a lopsided twitch involving her just her right shoulder. You kill worms. They're nice fried. We have to kill them or the Aulions would die, Astra retorted. But beneath her indignation, a strange sensation was stirring. Eat worms? Even though she had fed them to silver every day, the, th the thought of eating them herself had never occurred to her. As she considered it, she began to feel uncomfortably aware of the inside of her mouth. For her worm did not belong there. It would be gristly and sour and slimy, wouldn't it? My dad called it wild spaghetti, Lil continued. You have to add garlic. I don't want to talk about it. Lil tugged at a clump of glass, grass, pulling it out of the turf. Astra snapped, don't do that. You've killed it. It's just grass, Lil scoffed. It sees itself back. We use long grass for our beds. Again, reactions wrestled inside her. The girl's nonchalant contempt for Gaia was outrageous. But at the same time, she was like a horrible old world story about oil or fossil fuels. Even though it disgusted you, you wanted to find out what happened. Well, this grass helps keep Wise House cool, so don't destroy it, she ordered. Lil looked bored, but she patted the root ball back into the roof and brushed the earth from her hands. Then she sat back, stretched out her legs, and idly scratched her Gaia mound. She had far more hair there than Astra, a curly black thicket. Astra fingered the tip of her dread. Two could play at that game. Hockmer said, you haven't had your Gaia blood yet, Lil announced. So, Astra sneered, but there was a pang in her chest. Was there no end to Hockmer's betrayal? Lil had used three or four pads a day in her blood panties when she arrived at Wise House, washing them out in the sink with Hockmer and hanging them to dry across the lawn. Hockmer had said Astra's turn would come soon, 
and her other shelter mother, Nimmo, was all making, already making her hip beads for the blood and seed ceremony last month. There was no need for Lil to know any of that. It only hurts sometimes, Lil informed her, but when it does, oh, you feel like you're going to die. You'll probably get it when you're 13. Astra tossed her head, putting her dread back behind her ear. How do you know? I might get it sooner. Of course, she wanted to get it during the blood and seed ceremony. But Nimmer had said that Gaia bleeding wasn't a competition. Girls naturally started at different ages, just as boys produced seed at different ages. And the blood and seed ceremony welcomed all year seven graduates to adulthood together. She wasn't going to talk to Lil about the ceremony, though. What if Lil said she wanted to come and Hockma let her, even though she was 14? Astra was the only year seven girl in awe, and she would soon have the honor of representing her community at the bio-regional congregation site with girls and boys from all over the dry forest. She definitely didn't want to have to share that honor with Lil whom no one yet, after all, had proved was not a non-lander. Thank you very much, Naomi. So I think we're now ready for our second reader of the second set, Will Eves. Will Eves announced? Um, poet and novelist, has been the arts editor at the Times Literary Supplement, no less, and teaches English and creative writing at the University of Warwick, and has been shortlisted twice for the Goldsmiths Prize, and his latest novel, Murmur, has been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize, which normally goes to non-fiction, so that's a huge achievement, and we'd like to welcome him to the stage now, Will Eaves. Hello. <coughs> right. Um, I'm a little alarmed about reading from Murmur because it's comprehensively bleak. Um, but I will read from it because you can take it, can't you? Yes. Um, I might all end with something sort of, you know, light and fluffy. We'll see. So this is a book that takes as its point of departure the last years in the life of the logician and computer science pioneer Alan Turing, who, as you may recall, um, helped us crack the German label Enigma code in the Second World War, and was convicted of gross indecency with another male in 1952, and sentenced to a punitive hormonal regimen, which changed his body and changed his mind. And um, he took his life um, two years after that. So this book is an attempt to understand what might have happened to his mind while he was taking that drug, um, which was a sort of lab-grade estrogen. Um, the center part of the book, the bulk of the book, is a series of hallucinations or dreams um, produced by the stilbestrol, the estrogen. And in the dreams, he revisits important episodes of his life. And the little bit I'm going to read um, is set uh, in his school days. Um, it's a revisiting of a particular night at school in the late 20s um, in which he 
swam across a lake uh, with a boy in search of food, sort of punitive English public school, no food, semi-starving sort of community, swims across a lake at night to try and find some food. Um, the narrative voice is a little hard to place, and that's because the narrative voice is really the dreamer, who is a kind of third person. They swim across the lake that forms a natural boundary to Wargrave School in search of food. They are the hunter-gatherers of a famished tribe following a moonlit trail, suspended in a darkened element, wind ruffled where the oxbow widens and the river terrace drops. Halfway between the boathouse and the other shore, Pryor pulls up, treads water, waits for Molyneux, who's making slow progress, breathing poorly, each stroke laboriously conceived. Pryor prefers to swim beneath the surface of the lake, where he can go faster. He waits and hangs, expelling air so that he sinks. And while he sinks, opens his eyes to watch the water's relic luminosity vanish. Into the dark he falls and feels almost no resistance, his weight distributed. I'm not falling, he thinks. The earth rises. He has no force. The massive body of the lake bottom, its feet of leaves and grit, the old floodplain, bedrock, downfold and crust, the whole planet rushes to greet his cold body. He has the feeling that he's staring back in time or at another part of time. And as he stares, the white, blown carcass of a moon-like fish, a tench, stares back from the reed bed, its ripped flesh waving in a dense current. On the far side of Doville Lake, the Dovilles, Ceylonese tea giants, built their summer house, and round it in a fertile acre planted an orchard, apples, plums espaliered, damsons and mirabelles, raspberry canes. It stretches down to shiny pebbles and a gravel bed, in whose unkind embrace the two boys lie, shocked by exposure, both shaking. Molyneux shakes a little less. His breath comes, when it comes at all, in whistles. He is curled up like a louse. On his blue chest, a salvage team hammers for scrap, battering lungs and heart. Alec! The other boy makes no reply, but picks his friend up and hauls him through dusty canes towards the summer house, a pavilion with rattan chairs, a daybed, blankets in a pile. The French windows are locked. The waning gibbous moon behind Pryor is bright, and I can see his desperation at the pain, the pain that houses me. He shades his eyes to see inside, the body of Chris Molyneux has one arm about Pryor's neck, one foot dragging, the other twisting free. Panic distracts. It does not concentrate the mind. And while he casts about for stones, Pryor scents warlike omens in the air. A cat, loping along the blue shoreline, stops to observe the scene. A field mouse trails from its mouth. There are others among the trees. The secret population of the night 
avid for death. And Pryor, unwilling to drop his friend, afraid to break the glass. What if he cuts his hand and faints? Who'll help them then? Molyneux's hanging arm swings once and points. A silver hint from underneath a grey stock brick. Pryor lays down the painful weight. Molyneux twitches, tries to cough. And Pryor takes the key and thrusts it in the lock. Something has warped, worked loose. Molyneux is lying at his feet in the spring mulch, leaves glossy dark as patent leather shoes, his body thin and starved but smooth, like some young chief not yet committed to his passage grave, waiting for earth and chalk to wrap him round. Inside the pavilion, above the daybed, glows a deer's skull. Pryor shivers. He didn't see it there before, although it's bright, as Sirius in Canis Major, Procyon or Capella. And by an optical effect, the angle of the moon, his own reflection peers out from the animal's long head, which grunts and stares. The animal he has become inspires him to charge. He butts the door. It falls open, a clatter of springs and uncorked wood. A lightning crack divides my pain, and I see everything faulted and thrown. Thank you. So that's the bleak. That's the bleak, and this is the flippant. This is from The Absent Therapist, which is short monologues, short stories, very short. <laughs> they didn't like him because he was self-sufficient, which is not to say he was rich, because he wasn't. He was just the wrong sort of homosexual. That is to say, close and mysteriously confident about men and sex, not extrovert, needy, and therefore harmless. I heard the usual stuff. It's a selfish life. It's not nice for the children. I have to explain about the strangers going in and out, etc. Did they envy him his solitude and freedom? Do Catholics shit in the woods? He told me a wonderful story once about some man who came round for sex and said, give me a blowjob then. And Terry said, that's not very romantic. And the man sighed and said, all right, give me a blowjob in the rain. Thanks. Yes, I have no idea what he was talking about there at all. It was very interesting. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And um, our that was Will Eaves. Well done. And our next our next reader is Hannah Jameson. Hannah Jameson in the house. Lovely, lovely, lovely. She's only 17 when her first book was shortlisted for the Dagger Award, CWA Dagger Award. Marvellous. And she's been described as writing like an angel on speed whatever that means. Uh, she's worked for the NHS, travelled all over the world, and um, she studied North American history. And this last is her first novel for Penguin, so please welcome Hannah Jameson. Hello. <coughs> Hello. Um, I just want to first off say that this is the most stressful event format I have perhaps ever done. I'm not used to being this high up relative to the audience. Um, and before this event, my publicist described it, you know, what, what she felt was reassuringly 
It's like five minutes of stand-up, but without any pressure to be funny. <laughs> um, and I can tell immediately that that was a lie because the pressure to be funny is currently overwhelming. Um, this is my book. Um, it's called The Last. It's uh, described by my publisher as Agatha Christie meets Stephen King. It's about the end of the world, and it's a post-apocalyptic murder mystery narrated by a historian who is stranded in a remote hotel in Switzerland along with about 20 other survivors. And he starts investigating the murder of a girl whose body is found in the rooftop water tank, inspired by a real true crime case. I don't know whether any of you have heard about the case of Elisa Lam in Los Angeles. Someone's nodding like very aggressively in the front row, yes. Uh, there's some YouTube footage you can watch. It's very disturbing. Um, but I like to introduce this as um, the book that my first agent dropped me over. Um, I submitted this book, he very politely passed on it. And I don't know if I can articulate the emotion of being dropped by someone who's meant to be your professional cheerleader, but it fucking sucks. Um, it was then passed on to another agent who promptly sold it to Penguin and Simon and Schuster. Um, I do like to be proven right in the most dramatic fashion. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I wrote this book. I started writing it in 2017, and a lot of people have described it as a kind of post-Trump thriller. But what I was most interested in is this palpable sense of loss that had begun to permeate our political discourse. The idea that people had started grieving for an idea of the society that they had, this idea of progress, and suddenly everything seemed very non-linear. And I think dystopian fiction really lends itself to looking at our society with the brightness and contrast turned up in the way that J.G. Ballard does. And I think apocalyptic fiction can apply to a lot more than it currently does. I think The Grapes of Wrath is apocalyptic fiction. I think the apocalypse, its Latin roots actually mean to uncover or to reveal. So in my opinion, the best apocalyptic fiction is something that uncovers a truth about the world we already live in. It reveals something to us that we didn't want to acknowledge was there. And we don't have to look very far from where we are to find an apocalypse. If you want to talk about not being able to access food, uh, just look at Yemen. If you want to talk about not being able to access clean drinking water, Flint, Michigan hasn't had clean drinking water since 2014. If you want to talk about reproductive justice, uh, indigenous women in Canada were being sterilized by the Canadian government last year. Um, so yeah, that's why... I, I told you this wasn't going to be funny. I'm, all I'm talking about is the end of the world. Um, but that is what I think apocalyptic fiction can teach us. And I'm going to read an abridged version of chapter one. <laughs> I really don't like reading my own work out. Not because I don't think it's good or that I don't think I'm good at doing it. It's just that my protagonist is a middle-aged, emotionally distant, fucked up uh, American man with a San Franciscan accent by way of Mississippi. And uh, like, I'm a good reader. I just never feel like I quite <laughs> nail the tone. Day three. Nadia once told me that she was kept awake at night by the idea that she would read about the end of the world on a phone notification. 
it wasn't exactly Kennedy's sort of Damocles speech, but I remember that moment word for word. For me, three days ago, it happened over a complimentary breakfast. Breaking, nuclear attack on Washington in progress, story developing. Breaking, 200,000 fatalities estimated, say experts. Breaking, confirmed, president and staff among dead in nuclear explosion, awaiting more information. Then there was some aerial footage from London, and we all watched the buildings vanish into dust in real time under an iconic pillar of cloud. That was the only footage available, so we watched it over and over. It didn't seem as real as the headlines. Maybe we'd all been desensitized to the imagery by too many movies. Watching a whole city vaporize like that seemed too fast and too quiet. A plane went down on the outskirts of Berlin, and we only knew Berlin was gone because someone in the plane had uploaded a video of them going down. Dust in the engines, maybe. I can't remember what she was saying. She was crying and hadn't been speaking English. It was probably just goodbye. Breaking, nuclear weapon detonates over Washington. Hundreds of thousands feared dead. Breaking, Canadian Prime Minister calls for calm as nuclear attack hits US. Breaking, US without government as nuclear bomb devastates Washington. Maybe I was lucky, watching the end of the world online instead of living it, reacting to an explosion or a siren announcing one. We're not gone yet. This is the third day and the internet is down. I've been sitting in my hotel room watching what I can see of the horizon from my window. If anything happens, I'll do my best to describe it. I can see for miles over the forest, so when it's our turn, I imagine I'll have some warning. And it's not like I have anyone to say goodbye to here. I can't believe I didn't reply to Nadia's text. I can't believe I thought I had time. Thank you, buy my book. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah, and do buy her book and buy it. Everybody's books are all for sale at the back there, I believe. Excellent. Now, for our last reader this for this set is Greg Chivers, a writer and television producer and from Brixton. Hey, um, local boy. Um, his show, What on Earth? Most successful series of all time on the Science Channel. And I know he's into science because I can remember him coming into my library when he was a young man and saying, um, he was asking me if, if we had a, he said, have you got that new book out that's about Pavlov's dog and Schrodinger's cat? And I said, well, it rings a bell, but I don't know if we've got it or not. And, uh, and he, uh, he was returning a book about anti-gravity matter, and I said, did you enjoy it? He said, yes, I couldn't put it down. So here we are. So without further ado, please welcome Greg Chivers. What an, what an intro. Um, well, this is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, you slave away on your own in your room for a year writing a book, and then it comes out, and then people say, go up on stage, read it in front of like, you know, dozens of people. And it's like, ah. But if I have to do it anywhere, I'm very glad it's here, because Brixton is home to me. And uh, I don't necessarily think that where you're from shapes exactly what you write. It's probably just a coincidence that I wrote a novel full of noisy religious fanatics pounding the street. You know. um, my novel, The, the Crime Machine, is uh, it's, it's a heist thriller. It's about uh, sort of stealing a precious ancient artifact in the future. The 
bit I'm going to read is from the POV of my villain, who is the uh, corrupt minister of antiquities in my future Jerusalem. Uh, for sort of all sorts of cunning reasons I won't really go into, he has just staged an assassination attempt on himself. Uh, a huge sheet of glass fell from a building, narrowly missing um, where, where he was standing. And now he's just having a little chat about it with uh, his PA, Sybil. Now, you may notice in this section that he is uh, quite sexist, uh, but it's okay because she kills him in the end. Uh, that, uh, that, that's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but, uh, you know, that'll, that'll get me off the hook. Okay. Uh, a parallelogram of glass, smaller than a fingernail, falls from my hair. It tinkles faintly when it hits the polished ceramic of the basin in my office's ensuite. This is disappointing. It's almost 48 hours since my energetic little stunt, and I'd hoped to leave every trace of it behind. Sybil, I think it's in my pants. My voice echoes deafeningly against the closed cedarwood door. Despairing, I abandon the effort to tame the strands of hair straying across my scalp and turn to poke it open with a foot. Sybil! She appears, visible only as a sliver through the barely open door, eyes averted to eliminate the possibility of seeing anything unfortunate. Do you want me to look? Don't be ridiculous. You promised me it would shower out. I've had three since Friday, and I swear I still crunch when I sit down. Her eyes roll. What I told you was based on the specifications of the manufacturers of the safety glass. They claim it will shatter into fragments no smaller than four centimeters. Easy to find, unlikely to enter ears or airways. I can take it up with them. Oh, forget about it. She waits silently, gauging my mood. It's true, on occasion, Sybil veers uncomfortably towards mockery, and a more fragile man might jibe at the occasional implied insult. But it is a small price to pay for her powers. Any word about young Levy Perez? Not much. He checked in to ask about some data on the target, but I don't know what he's doing with it. Surveillance is difficult, he's careful, and it's his neighborhood. Our informer reports his movements have been more or less the usual routine. What's he waiting for? I've made sure that warehouse is wide open. In the grander scheme of things, the cost of the bribes I pay for the relevant people to turn a blind eye are negligible. But goodwill expires quicker than it used to, and I have other plans that will need the machine cult's money. He still has a couple of days on the schedule you gave him. Do you want me to have him brought in? God, no. Stick to the plan. Arm's length until we need an arrest. Yes, Minister. All right, then. What about Amos? Any signs of life? He must know something's up. She nods, looking away briefly as I adjust my trousers, before emerging into the office proper and settling at my desk. Oh, he knows, but I can't tell you what he's doing about it. He's upped the security for his office. EM sweeps at random intervals two to three times daily. That's practically wartime protocol. So we have to work on the assumption that our electronic surveillance has gone dark permanently. Annoying, but it was bound to happen sooner or later. Let me know the moment he does anything more substantive than basic security. Sybil smiles uneasily, sensing my tension. Petty thievery is one thing, but Amos Glassberg, pillar of the establishment, is the keystone in all of this. She grimaces. It's going to be difficult while Glassberg's being so careful. I'll try. I'm sorry, what? She flinches at the rebuke before catching herself. 
On the whole, she requires little in the way of external motivation, but a few modest fireworks elim eliminate the possibility of any misunderstandings as to where my priorities lie. I'll let you know the instant he makes a move. Better. Anything else? Or is there a chance I might be able to keep my morning appointment with the lovely Consuelo? Uh, the single syllable, uttered reluctantly, banishes any hopes I harboured of a good day. With Sybil, hesitation is an unfailing harbinger of the awful. I'm afraid there is some bad news. I would normally try to avoid bothering you with something like this, but in the circumstances... Come on, out with it. It's Boutros, sir. Boutros? The curator responsible for the Antikythera mechanism. Ugh, that man is a pain. His obsession with that thing borders on the pathological. You'd think it was his mother's ashes. What about him? He didn't turn up for work again, so museum management sent someone round to his apartment. They found him dead on the floor of his living room. Dead? We didn't. No, your orders were very clear on that point. He was to be left unharmed, no matter how much of the fuss he kicked up. It looks like a suicide. Looks? If someone has decided to make a point, they have chosen a poor moment. An obvious death draws dangerous attention. There is too much at stake now. Why would anyone think anything else? Think carefully, Sybil. Your answer could have a rather dramatic effect on all our futures. She smiles at the slightly oblique reference to her promised reward. If everything goes to plan, she will occupy this desk in a few months' time, no doubt pouring scorn on a deputy of her own. Sometimes her hunger for it is palpable. In her rare, unguarded moments, you can see the fierce smile as she imagines her ascension but there is no sign of exultation now. Something has disturbed her. According to the autopsy, there is nothing anywhere on him that could be a fatal wound, and no trace of drugs or poison in his system. So he just lay down on the floor and died of grief that I took away his favourite toy. We've both seen stranger things happen, but no. He has injuries to his hands, multiple breaks and dislocations in all the joints, like someone tried to tie them in a knot, and she stops, uncertain. What? Her voice lowers to a whisper. His fingernails were missing. All of them. Gone. Okay, thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. And that brings us to the end of the second set. So please... 10-minute break now. Do have a drink, buy a drink, and don't forget to go to the bookshop and buy some books. The lovely booksellers at the back there will help you. So we'll see you in 10 minutes. Thank you. Take it away, Andy. Andrew? And uh, our first reader of the last set needs no introduction, which saves me a bit of work. But it is the woman without whom none of us would be here this evening. So it is, of course, our very own Zelda. And uh, Zelda will be reading from her first published book, Capo Scripti, which is a marvellous read. I recommend it. Please welcome Zelda. Hi, everyone. So you may know that Cafe Max is back. Good. This is good. Uh, but 15 years ago, when the chapter that I'm about to read you is set, the Brixton 
market, Atlantic Road was a different place. So I'm just going to take you back in time. Nighttime in London, or rather the elect electric dusk that passes for night in the city, where the sky develops a perpetual orange glow that conceals all but the brightest stars. The thin haze softens everything into indistinctness. Patches of light from the street lamps intensify the areas of shadow under the long land bridge supporting the railway line, cast doorways and corners into obscurity. Beneath the overhang, arches curve along the pavement. The shops and offices are shuttered against the night, rendered uniform by the dark outlines of graffiti etched into them. The street is littered with the debris of daytime and has that peculiar sense of isolation of the shuttered outdoor market. Save for the dim glimmer of reflection thrown from his lens, the photographer is near invisible in his hiding place. Black coat melting into the dark stone, dark eyes, dim hollows in his pale face, camouflaged in stillness checking for cameras. His quarry, an old drunk entering the final stages of dipsomania, is about halfway down the street, bedded down for the night in the entrance of the station. Like the market in the shops, it's closed now, quiet and deserted, and she's only just visible through the metal cage that forms the stairwell, a near shapeless bundle in the darkness. Even the filth, and the stink of piss and stale cider have not been enough to dissuade her from the shelter that the stairwell affords in the coldest hour before dawn. Shelter, the photographer reflects, that will provide his activities for some cover too. Everywhere these days there are cameras, cameras watching, cameras hidden by them, tricks and feints, even the concealed ones might be dummies, double bluffs, no escape. Watching me, he marks her and bides his time. There's no need to rush. Does anyone really see such people? Maybe not. The camera catches everything. The photographer pictures a grand controller seated in front of a giant switchboard wired into a chamber studded with monitors and obscene symbiosis, a monstrous eye. Images flash on the screen, zoom shots, wide pans from the grainy black and white of CCTV to the lurid polychrome of cheap porn. Suddenly everything vanishes. Every screen switches to a single shot a magnified view of the very street, the very doorway where he's hiding, camera lens glinting in the street light, sight and senses straining. But what would they see? Nothing. For how can they see what they're not looking for? Blind, blind leading the blind, eyes closed to the passions and the noise, fragments of the lost language. He's been watching this one for some time now, saving her up like a banquet, waiting for the moment of significance, the confluence of signs. 
Even in the dark, you can form a perfect mental picture of every contour of her person from filthy, uncrusted layers of petticoats and blouses and skirts and coats and cardigans, the bloated feet wrapped in layers of plastic, conjunctival eyes squinting from the lined and bloodshot face. He is impervious to the decay. For him, this face still holds a promise of beauty, hints given on the high cheekbones, weathered cheeks sockets spaced wide, and eyes of an extraordinary color. He's observed her in all weathers, panhandling for change or drinking tenant super on a bench in the library with the other regulars, shouting and spitting at the pigeons, at the government, at the rain, and at the great confusing conspiracy of it all, sleeping on the pavement, as oblivious to the passers-by as they are to her. How many times has he asked himself, does anyone see such people, really see them, or just register their presence as they pass in the morning as an annoyance, or obstacle, or object of sudden pity, quickly forgotten? How many hundreds of pairs of eyes glance at this woman on a daily basis without ever seeing her at all? And if challenged to describe even one small aspect of her appearance, what would they recall? Naturally, this last is an important consideration. It's different for him, for them. He's intimate with her, close as no other. Who else could describe as a photographer can describe? the color of her eyes, the moles on her face, the deep lines carved down to the mouth. Who knows the precise number of her teeth and which are crowned? Who traces the lines of her hands, the varicose veins marbling the back of her calves, measures the tone and tenor of her voice, when she wakes, when she sleeps, where she goes? Who at last touched her emaciated body as he would filled with a kind of awe before the microcosm of humanity, the machinery of natural language latent in her cells, like some complex DNA strand waiting to unfold. She'll be more than the sum of her parts. And all this contingent on the cameras, the CCTV, his present concealment and his long observation of her habits. Will anybody miss her? Will anyone register her absence, and having registered it, ask questions, instigate a trace, complete footage of her haunts to establish just when and where and how she disappeared? Not all of his subjects have been women, although there have certainly been a few. Outwardly, they differ from each other, but linked by a common theme, the shibboleth late and intimate, their musculature, in the juxtaposition of cheekbone and eye sockets, the grammar of the sacred language encoded in each like a cipher. Each of these individuals could be prepared and reduced to their essence, the barest equation. Each would become an elegant notation in the vast and complex calculation, the answer to which is the original word, the knowledge the first humans stole from the Garden of Eden which was lost in the destruction of the Tower of Babel. 
her hand, cracked and slightly crusted. Is it exposure or some skin complaint worsened by dirt and lack of washing? The contact is uncomfortable, but necessary to reassure her. The last thing he needs is a scene in front of the cameras. He glances at her profile in the darkness, walking head down, one foot in front of the other, and the next gets where you're going. How many years of the same round? Deliverer. The rented car is around the corner. It feels like miles, like they're crawling open targets on the battlefield. Finally, they reach it. He opens the passenger door. It's all right, Betty. We're going to help you. Can't have you sleeping on the cold street at night. Slow, slow talking in a gentle monotone. Reassuring smile. No sudden movements. In his pocket, the solution just in case. Once she's in, he closes the passenger door. Gently and walks slowly around to the other side of the car, settling his large frame into the seat. Turns the ignition and starts the car. Turns to look at Betty, already dozing, head on her chest and a comfortable one. Good, they can drive for a while. After half an hour or so, sure she's deep in slumber, he slowly brings the car to a halt in a residential street beneath a large tree. What infinite patience it requires to wait for a couple more minutes. The street is quiet and dark, and she has not stirred at all. Time. Now. Zelda, chilling stuff, chilling stuff. Now, our next reader, our next reader is a, a man who probably needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Another local boy, um, and it's Jim Bob. Jim Bob was the singer with Carter the Unstoppable. Fax machine, I think that says. Uh, had a number one album and a headline, Glastonbury. is an awful, eight solo albums, uh, Edinburgh all sorts he's written four novels but tonight he'll be reading to us from the second volume of his autobiography um following goodnight jim bob which was published in 2004 he is going to read from his latest book just published um in the shadow of my former self jim bob from carter the unstoppable fax machine <laughs> Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Jim Bob. That's show business. <laughs> That's kind of what the bit I'm going to read is about. Um, how my sort of uh, reluctant to uh, tell people who I am or who I used to be, but at the same time quite annoyed when they don't know who I am. Anyway. <laughs> it's... Uh, that's quite a rock and roll thing to do there. In 2016, just two days after my mum's funeral in Devon, I had to come back to London to do jury service. I ended up on a case that lasted for nine weeks. 
and this will make me sound like the most deluded egotist in the world, but every day in court, I wondered if somebody was going to recognize me. Either one of the jury or someone in the public gallery. What if it was one of the accused who was the big Carter fan? Or maybe a barrister would realize who I was, the judge even. 20 years earlier, Carter had played a gig at the Inns of Court in London for an audience of pissed up trainee barristers and judges. It was one of the worst gigs of my life. Maybe someone from the audience of that god-awful gig was on the case. Over the course of more than two months together on the same jury, at some point, everyone would ask each other what they were missing to be in court. Did they have to take time off work or were they self-employed? Were they getting reimbursed for their time off or was jury duty going to bankrupt them? Whenever I was asked about my job, I said I was a writer. I thought it would make for a less awkward nine weeks. And after all, I had just spent the last two years writing a novel, so it wasn't like I said I was a portrait painter or a gymnast. I was supposed to be finishing the novel instead of sitting on a jury, but unfortunately, book deadlines, like recent family bereavements, weren't considered reason enough to be excused from court. The thing is, though, you can't just say you're a writer and leave it at that. People are probably going to want details. If I'd said I was a road sweeper or a plumber, it's fairly self-explanatory. You're unlikely to be quizzed on the type of broom you use or whether you're mostly plumb toilets or kitchens. I know if somebody told me they were a writer, I'd definitely want to know what it was they wrote, books or plays or films or scripts, or a journalist maybe. Fiction or non-fiction, juror number eight asked me. Oh, fiction. Adult fiction or children's books? Adult fiction. Have you had anything published? At this point in the conversation, I can already feel that pride is going to come into play. I've had a couple published. Mm. Anything I would have heard of? Maybe, boasting a bit now. The last couple did quite well. Better dial the boasting back down a little. Well, on Kindle at least. I'll have to look them up. I can't resist a potential sale. The last one's on offer at the moment. There's, there's no stopping me. It actually won an award. Really? What award did you win? Uh, it was for the book's main character, A Touch of Humility. The book's main character, Frank Derrick, he won Best Older Person's Character in a Film, Book, TV or Radio Drama. At this point, taking the award out of my bag to show juror number eight would probably be a little over the top. It's very heavy, he says, hefting the weight of the award as though he's about to offer me money for it. And I beat some pretty impressive people. I've dropped any pretense uh, that, uh, that it was a character of the book who won the award and not me now. So Ian McKellen, to Derek Jacobi, Francis Delator, and Gemma Jones. Ian McKellen was nominated for two roles, and yet I still beat him. For a moment there, I thought the judge was going to have to adjourn until Monday until I stopped boasting. The next person who asks what I do, I'll say I'm a plumber. Although knowing my luck, they would have needed a bit of work doing in their bathroom, and I'd end up having to look at YouTube videos so that I can learn how to fix their shower. How did you get into writing? Juror number eight isn't finished yet. Did you study it at uni? No, I, I wrote a non-fiction book and sort of carried on after that. Oh, what was the non-fiction book about? Oh, just stuff I used to do. Oh, what sort of stuff? Here we go. I was a musician. Oh, really? What sort of music? Oh, it's difficult to describe. Depending on who I'm talking to, I might say rock or punk rock. Or I usually mention drum machines or synthesizers. It was a sort of pop rock with a drum machine, I said. Oh, what instrument did you play? Guitar, but I used to sing mostly. Oh, were you in a band or was it just you? Well, most of it was with a band. That's what I was probably well s most well known for. Not that well known, that's pretty clear. That's what he's thinking. Did you make any records? A few. What, with the band? Yes. Anyone I would have heard of? 
Probably not. It was quite a long time ago. Oh, what was the band called? Oh, I doubt you would have heard of them. I won't give the full name. Carter? Jura 8 sits forward on seats, studies my hair, checks the length of my trousers. Not Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. Are you Jim Bob or Fruit Bat? <laughs> I managed to make it through nine weeks of jury service with only three of my fellow jurors finding out my secret. Or so I thought. When the case was over, most of us went to the pub, which was when I found out it was more like six members of the jury who knew I was. And then, because I was drinking, it suddenly became important to me that everyone knew. And I was soon looking up album chart websites on my phone, typing Glastonbury headline acts into Google and showing everyone that smash hits video. <laughs> Luckily, most people aren't too disappointed when they find out who I am. Sometimes they're actually delighted. And sometimes that makes me delighted. I'm going to drop a name here. Like when Mrs. Jim Bob, big shout out to Mrs. Jim Bob in the audience tonight, <laughs> asked John Ronson to sign a copy of his So You've Been Publicly Shamed book to Jim Bob. He looked at her and said, not the Jim Bob. <laughs> and it was. He wasn't thinking of the bloke from the Waltons. It was definitely because he said something about a song. I'd definitely him. Me. Anyway, there are obviously times when I go through the whole game of Jim Bob charades and when I finally reveal who I am or who I was, they'll shrug and they'll say that they've never heard of Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. I tell those people to fuck off. <laughs> and that's why I was held in contempt of court. Thank you. Marvellous. Bit of rock and roll, bit of rock and roll. We do like a bit of rock and roll at Hoot Nanny. And uh, so now it's time for our next reader, who is also a writer, obviously, whose name is Gar Adams. Now, Gar Adams has been all over the world, another multi-talented, multi... Um, yes, he's, <laughs> he's uh, written on the Middle East and South Asia, and he's lived all over in these places. His essays have been anthologized. He's... he's um, Contributed to the most beautiful book, Uncommon Dubai, which I'm hoping he'll be reading for us tonight. And um, his work has been translated into six languages. And what, what I'm most pleased about Gar Adams is that he has decided, after living all over the world, to come and live in Brixton. And Brixton is, as we know, Brixton, uh, London is the capital of the world, and Brixton is the capital of London, isn't it? So <laughs> please welcome Gar Adams, who's going to... Read to us from his non-fiction book about queerness and migration. Gar Adams. Thank you. I'm going to be reading an excerpt from my essay in this publication, which is an anthology called Uncommon Dubai, which is a collection of artists, writers, academics, writing about the unexpected corners of the city. Um, the crux of my work for the past decade has been not just challenging the misconceptions people have about the Middle East, but also interrogating why they have them in the first place. Um, so I'm going to be reading sort of from the midway point of this essay, which is on male barbershop culture in a working class neighborhood in Dubai. Despite my best attempts, I found the media's standard issue critiques of the country the inaccessibility of its cultural spaces, the vapidity of its Guinness World Record superlatives, difficult to ignore during my first few weeks. I was a New Yorker who had spent the better part of a year studying Arabic in Yemen, 
and my initial explorations left me with the distinct impression that the, that the UAE lacked both the thriving bustle of Manhattan and the close-knit communality of my neighborhood in Sana'a. I had landed at the start of Ramadan and the height of 45 degree days, an unfortunate convergence that left me exploring empty streets and feeling like the country's sole defiant outdoor pedestrian in a relentless assault of fancy cars and malls and sun-bleached billboards advertising fancier cars and newer malls. Alone with the deserted sidewalks of Dubai late one afternoon, a few weeks after my arrival, I found myself craving the vibrancy of a grungy Lower East Side bar or the hospitality of a Sanna Majlis, but sweaty and irritated after an aimless stroll through the streets of Dira, I mostly just craved a damn good shave. Scratching my face with the fervor of a flea-ridden gibbon, I started hunting for a spot that could rid me of my pesky whiskers. And then a funny thing happened. I noticed that the whole street in front of me was lined with barber shops. The fluorescent signs were everywhere. Two of them flashed the word barber in the same lustrous green on opposing street corners. Up and down the lane I roamed, signboards emblazoned with the word salon ignited the dusky air with deep reds and regal blues. I fixated on one partially obscured by a dusky old awning for Khaybar Gentsalon, probably subconsciously enticed by the connotation of alcohol in American Old West saloons. Loitering outside El Foz for a few moments, I was struck by the cheerful commotion inside, men in various stages of shaving, laughing with one another and pointing at a Bollywood film on the old television set mounted to the wall. I looked at my map. I had strolled north and east of the Dira waterfront into Horel Ans, but before I could process more, a stout, bearded man in a starched white uniform ushered me in with a persistent wave. A moment later, I was slathered with foamy, mint-scented shaving cream, wedged between a Carolite tailor and a Ugandan driver, discussing Obama's foreign policy while my Lahori barber shoved two Q-tips covered in black, sticky wax up my nostrils. Okay, I thought struggling to process the delightfully unexpected scene reflecting in the mirror before me. Maybe Dubai does have a few surprises worth exploring. The story of Horal Ans is a familiar one. An elegant neighborhood, once reserved for the privileged, then neglected to the point of despair, but ultimate re ultimately reinvigorated by an influx of outsiders. Today, with the original vision of a quaint Emirati housing development, a distant memory, Coral Anza's residences buzz with the energy of a vibrant working class, hailing from the corners of South and Southeast Asia. Balconies flutter with laundry, the drying uniforms of drivers, cooks, and porters catching the wind. Tenants file out of its utilitarian cement housing and into the world of fast-paced commerce. Tea stalls serving piping hot chai, tandoor bakeries peddling roti, traveling agencies promising the cheapest visa flights to Kitch Island, and lighting up every few meters of sidewalk into the furthest reaches of the neighborhood, the bright signs for the barbershops of Horolans. Fluorescent signs in English and Arabic above the storefronts officially welcome patrons, while iridescent decals for barber or saloon in Hindi, Urdu, and Malayalam plastered to many of the barbershop's windows speak to a different clientele. But signs in any language aren't really necessary Lingering outside a barbershop's glass storefront, regardless of your nationality, will result in the same outcome, a hearty wave urging you inside. Inside the barbershop, time is fluid. You stay as long as the barber thinks you need, 
and you linger as long as you would like. You can continue reading your newspaper or lose yourself in a pivotal scene from the film Sholay on NBC or finish that chat with a fellow patron. In a city that lacks communal urban spaces, the barbershop is a welcome gathering place without a time limit. And in a country where public spheres are so often cloistered by nationality, the barbershops of Horlan subvert that reality. In one salon attached to a Muslim butcher, I have watched numerous men from all different countries point to the same faded photo in the shop's window of 80s Bollywood star Shah Rukh Khan. Even today, everyone wants hair like SRK. The Pakistani barber chuckled to me. At another barbershop behind a small grocery, three Nepali delivery men regularly frequent a Keralite-operated establishment, undeterred that the language of communication is primarily Malayalam. Shaking hands with the barber that bestows them with the matching undercuts in the mirror, they shyly admit their initial inspiration for entering this particular shop. A photo splashed across the storefront of a gr grinning Christian Ronaldo sporting the identical hairstyle. Sports seem to unite almost everyone in these barbershops. Men ask for haircuts like Lionel Messi and take photos of one another's end results. Patrons help each other pull up photos of sports stars on their phones for beard inspirations. And when a soccer or cricket match broadcasts live, men from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka stream into the shops with the biggest and loudest televisions. During a particularly tense India versus Pakistan cricket match a few years ago, I watched an Indian barber cut the hair of a Pakistani construction foreman while both were standing to watch the television. You promise you will not cut me if India will lose, the foreman laughed. Each courteously waited for the other to cheer or curse a particular run, and both ended up surviving a protracted haircut. While friendly chatter and music permeate most salons and horlans, periods of silence serve to connect as well. A lull between topics can fall over the shop with only the slight shuffle of, new of newspapers audible. Or a conversation will halt to respect a man who dozed off in the corner, basking in the midday sun. It is in these moments of quiet that a barber, be him from Hyderabad or Chittagong, will flick his eyebrows toward the sky. Lift your chin, his gesture says, or lightly graze a cheek. Turn your head to the left, he says, words unuttered. This is the nonverbal barbershop vocabulary spoken and comprehended by both barber and customer regardless of language. Placing your head on a shoulder mid-shave sends a heartfelt greeting. Holding up two fingers signifies the length of a cut. Smiling and offering a nod across the shop compliments another man's haircut. Pointing to yourself asks for the same style. Inside this world, a shared fluency in spoken language isn't compulsory to share moments with the men that surround you. Thank you. Thank you, Gar. What a wonderful little insight into, into culture. It really is wonderful. And now we come to our final reader of the evening. Now, our final reader may be familiar to some of you if you read the Guardian Weekend magazine because he had a feature in there just last weekend. So we're very privileged to have him this evening. Um, Ian Mullaney is a writer based in Dublin, and he's um, been born and raised in Ireland, but he also works as a freelance. He's editor of The Stinging Fly, and he's had his work published in many, many, many publications. And he's going to read from us tonight from his debut essay collection, Minor Monuments. Please welcome Ian Mullaney. Hello. So I'm the last reader, I think. 
um, which means it's my job to send you back <laughs> to send you back to work tomorrow. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit about death. Uh, death is never a single end but a collection of terminations ordinarily bound so tightly together in time that they coalesce as single and colorless as light into a unified experience. Alzheimer's disease undoes that unity by extending death, by drawing it backwards into life from its final closure. This dying process may take several years to reach its conclusion, and in this time we can observe death's interlocking components and follow its immaculate, pitiless logic. What if I said death was the removal of a person from the flow of time? Then we might see how death is never just one death, but many. A person stalls in death, and the rest of the world flows past them, leaving them behind. The ability of the, the living to go on separates us from the dead, and the dying too, who go on so much more slowly than the rest of us. The dying, or those who are aware of it at least, get to watch the world slipping away from them, to feel themselves being left behind as one by one the people they know desert them, not out of cruelty, not out of ignorance, but out of pure necessity. To live at death's pace is itself a kind of death, and nothing but the most sincere concern for another can sustain the living through it. A person who dies suddenly in an accident or in their sleep is lost first to themselves and then to those who knew them best, the first to be notified. From there the word will spread and they are lost more or less quickly to everyone who knew them. Their death echoes outward from a single point. The dying are lost over and over again in the opposite direction. First to the world of acquaintances, colleagues and peers who may or may not notice that they're no longer around, then to friends, distant and then close, then to family, distant and then close, and finally to themselves. And each time it is a death, each time it is the removal of a particular person from a particular flow of time. The order of one's disappearance may vary, but each time the conclusion is the same. The dying collapse inward. For an Alzheimer's patient, the traditional difficulties and indignities of age are accelerated. They may, like anyone else, suffer a minor stroke or develop arthritis. They may no longer be able to drive or to eat certain foods or to climb to an upstairs bedroom. Their friends may die or become otherwise incapacitated, leaving them isolated, bored, or lonely. In time, the slow extinguishing of memory unscrews the connections between brain, body, and world. They no longer know the people closest to them. They feel embarrassed by their lapses. They need help dressing and undressing. They retreat. Lying in bed on the threshold of death, the core instruments of the body, heart, lungs, demented brain, struggle on even as everything surrounding those vital forces ceases to function. The extremities are unconsciously neglected and the warmth of life leaves them. Cold feet twitch, eyes close. Fluids accumulate in the throat as the level of oxygen flowing through the body drops. 
After some time, a day, several days at most, the breathing stops, and a few minutes later, so does the heart. The living cells still left in the brain are smothered, starved, and their innumerable collections lapse, and the possibility of life is dissolved. As soon as we are ill, John Berger says, we fear that our illness is unique, undefined, illimitable. The newly arrived sickness is a threat to our very being. It shares in our own uniqueness, he says. This is particularly true of Alzheimer's, which attacks and undermines our very being, our sense of who we are and what we're doing in the world. Every case of Alzheimer's is experienced as completely unique because it is a, it is a disease that operates on the bedrock of our uniqueness. Patients, Berger notes, are typically quite relieved when their illness is named. Whether the name means anything, anything to them is unimportant. It is the name that allows them to have their complaint recognized. They're not making this up. This is a real thing. This is how it works, and this is how other people have dealt with it. Armed with the diagnosis, the patient is protected from the ambiguity of their disease. The disease is with them, but not of them. It is depersonalized. Alzheimer's is not so easily cordoned off. Because it is still incurable, because it is so terribly unique, naming the disease does little to strengthen the patient's position against it. It serves only to confirm their uniqueness and to make explicit the distinction that from now on will separate them from everyone else. Worse again, their uniqueness is an erasure. Alzheimer's is not an acquisition like a typical illness. It is not a cancer or an infection, but a loss barely visible on the surface of the body, a wound that seems to grow from the inside out, a loss that cannot be repaired, only observed, and that has at its end a total blank nothingness. The naming of Alzheimer's disease is not a positive defense against its effects. It is a wall behind which the struggle of the self to be recognized as more than its disease must take place. The frustration and bitterness for this struggle for recognition is unbearable because the struggle itself is, in some sense, the disease. The pain is rooted in our diminishing sense of ourselves and our place in the world, a sense that we are being erased. All frustration magnifies its own dissimilarity, Berger says, and so nourishes itself. The Alzheimer's patient is unique in the erasure of their own uniqueness, a vicious feedback loop of frustration, a great dialectical joke. Christmas Day, his last. The family, some cousins included, are gathered in my grandparents' kitchen around mid-morning, as we have been every other year of my life. This is when the children, and I am a child on that day, give my grandmother and grandfather their Christmas presents. The gifts themselves are inconsequential. It's the ceremony that's important. This year was different because I don't think we got him anything. There would have been no point. It had been a long time since he'd recognized any of his grandchildren, and he would have immediately forgotten any gift we gave him. He could remember Nana, my father, and usually my father's sister. His world had shrunk to those three people and that kitchen, which he left only to sleep. My grandmother always makes an oversized fuss about the small gifts she receives. 
She paused at the wrapping paper, not wanting to tear it. Once she has been cajoled into action and torn open the package, she will hold the soft lining of a new dressing gown against her face or bend close to savor the aroma of yet another scented candle. She will beam with happiness, and the sincerity of her appreciation only deepens our sense of embarrassment at having chosen such a pedestrian presence. It doesn't matter. She has been brought almost to tears by a jumbo book of word search puzzles. Strangely, when my father and his siblings were young, it was Janjo who would buy their Christmas presents. When we had finished with the gift giving that year, we sat around the kitchen chatting. My grandfather was quiet in the corner by the fire, smiling sometimes, but mostly unengaged, a little worried and withdrawn, possibly overwhelmed. Someone would occasionally try to tell him what was going on, but by then he could barely speak, much less take part in the conversation. If he responded at all, it was usually with one of the stock phrases he would use to deflect questions and gloss over his ability, inability to contribute. I remember we were about to leave. Everyone was standing up. Clean midwinter light poured through the window at the front of the house. The fire was low in the range. My grandmother was probably getting anxious about starting to prepare their Christmas, simple Christmas dinner. We fetched our coats and began to say our goodbyes. My grandfather was holding my mother's hand, I think, when he asked her who she was. She told him her name. She said she was married to my father. God help you, he replied. I am serious when I say the laughter lasted for a minute solid. I looked at my brothers and my cousins scattered around the kitchen and they were bent double, crying, laughing. My father was laughing, as much in disbelief as anything. He was being mocked by his demented 82-year-old father. Nana didn't know where to look. It was an incredible moment of pure comedic instinct, sharper and sweeter for having come from the very depths of his soul. And it was his soul the line displayed, that warm, joking soul with a little edge in every dig, piercing, mordant, kind, sincere. It was totally unexpected and it floored us all. This was the last moment when I thought to myself, yes, that's him. It was the last time I recognized him as himself and not his disease. Thanks. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this evening's readers. Thank you, Ian. That was wonderful. It just behoves me to thank a few people. Thank you very much, Jerome, the sound man, who's done a brilliant job this evening. And Andy, who's going to play us out with some more great records. And don't forget, you can buy the books of our wonderful readers this evening from our wonderful booksellers at the back there. And, uh, of course, we must thank Vanessa and Adrian for having us every day, every Monday, every three months. Brixton Book Term at the wonderful Hootenanny.